Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In May 2018, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I symposium that explored how the experience of World War I shaped many of America's World War II leaders. Dr. Keith Dixon, a professor at the Joint Forces Staff College, discussed Eisenhower and World War I. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it very much. And I look forward to talking to you about Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was born in 1890. He grew up in Abilene, Kansas, one of five brothers. His mother and father emphasized the values of personal faith, hard work, self-discipline, and education. He entered West Point in 1911 uh, for two reasons. One, to advance his athletic career, and the second, to get a free education. Uh, his athletic ambitions were cut short in 1912 when he suffered a, an injury playing football. Uh, but to Eisenhower, football was a unique sport because he believed that it has a transformative effect on people. Football, he wrote, instills in men the feeling that victory comes through hard, almost slavish work. Team play, self-confidence, and an enthusiasm that amounts to dedication. He would take this concept of football and apply it quite effectively to military training. After graduating in 1915, he arrived at Fort Sam Houston uh, and assigned to the 19th Infantry Regiment. Because of tensions with Mexico, National Guard units were sent to the border. Should sound familiar. Because of tensions with Mexico now, uh, the 19th was responsible for training uh, these guard units. So Eisenhower was attached to an Illinois National Guard unit, and the commander of that unit was more than happy to let the regular officer pretty much serve as the shadow commander. And so as a lieutenant now, essentially, Eisenhower took care of the administrative issues, discipline issues, training, and other administrative functions. With America's entry into the war in April of 1917, the 19th Infantry Regiment was broken up into cadre elements to support the development now of new infantry regiments for the incoming draftees and enlistees. So Eisenhower was a cadre member for the newly formed 57th Infantry Regiment. In a short period of time, about 3,500 men showed up with nothing more than their basic clothing issue in barracks bags. Eisenhower and other members of the cadre had to find a place to billet and train these men. They found a field outside of the fort that luckily had a well. From there, uh, the supply officer of the new regiment, Lieutenant Eisenhower, had to do everything, beg, borrow, steal, negotiate, requisition, all of the equipment necessary. And you can imagine, tents, blankets, stoves, food, uh, and equipment to put together this, this regiment of, of, uh, of new soldiers. So over the next few months, Eisenhower slowly but surely obtained the equipment necessary to outfit and prepare the regiment for training. He was promoted to captain shortly thereafter and was assigned to Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, to instruct officer candidates. He took his football training mindset with him, and he set high standards and weeded out those candidates he considered unfit to lead men in combat. He ran realistic training exercises in, the in trenches and dugouts that were 
prepared to replicate the front lines on the Western Front. Shortly thereafter, he was transferred to Fort Leavenworth to conduct training for newly commissioned second lieutenants. There he supervised physical training and conditioning. Though he chafed at these seemingly petty assignments and bombarded the War Department with appeals to be assigned to a unit deploying to Europe, he learned an important lesson. As he put it, perform every duty given me in the Army to the best of my ability. He elaborated on this lesson years later. Whenever I had convinced myself that my superiors, through bureaucratic oversights and insistence on tradition, had doomed me to run-of-the-mill assignments, he wrote, I found no better cure than to blow off steam and settle down and do the job at hand. A promising opportunity presented itself in February 1918 when he was assigned to Camp Meade, Maryland to organize tank corps troops for deployment. The newly formed 301st Tank Battalion was to receive priority of training and equipment in preparation for deployment. All of the men in the tank corps were volunteers, and so they naturally exhibited a high level of morale and enthusiasm. They were a perfect fit for Eisenhower's temperament and his football-based training philosophy. No tanks existed, however. They were so new to the battlefield that in the United States, tanks were largely an imaginative concept. But that did not deter Eisenhower in any way. Slotted to command this battalion overseas, he trained the soldiers in basic skills, building teams, and driving them to believe that once they arrived in Europe, and with a bit of practice, they would be the ones to break the stalemate on the Western Front and bring about decisive victory. Just as the unit received orders for deployment, Eisenhower himself received new orders. He was crushed to learn that he would not take the 301st into combat, but he would instead report to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, at a place called Camp Colt, where he would now take charge of the newly established Tank Corps Training Center. His ambition to lead real fighting men, as he said, had been denied. He expressed this frustration, writing, I seem embedded in the monotony and unsought safety of the zone of the interior. Other members of the class were already deployed. It looked to me as if, the only, as if anyone who was denied the opportunity to fight might as well get out of the Army after the war. As a footnote, the combat record of the 301st is interesting and reflects what happened to most American units in combat on the Western Front. The 301st Battalion fought in three separate offensives between September and November 1918. It began with 40 tanks and emerged from its last battle with 12 tanks and it suffered 50% casualties. Promoted to major, Eisenhower was the only regular army officer at Camp Colt and had the total responsibility for training, organizing, equipping, and preparing for the onward movement of tank troops to the European theater. Camp Colt soon had over 10,000 soldiers and 600 officers. As a commander, Eisenhower had to innovate continually. Not only did his troops require basic soldier skills, but they also required some specialized training to function individually and collectively as a tank unit. The problem was there's no training guidance. There's no doctrine. No concept at all for the employment of tanks in combat. Eisenhower was completely on his own. He started by reading summaries of war news from newspapers. And from these accounts, he gained a general understanding of tactics, uh, current tactics on the battlefront. Building on his experience with the 301st, Eisenhower stressed teamwork and high morale. He also created schools to teach skills he assumed tanks troops should know, such as telegraphy and motor maintenance. 
He procured several small cannons from the Navy and used them for practical drills. Using a few machine guns mounted on trucks, he had the troops practice engaging targets on the move and maneuvering with infantry. Three French Renault tanks arrived at Camp Colt, none of which had any armament, but they did arrive with several British liaison officers who would assist the Americans in learning how tanks were being employed in combat. This was Eisenhower's first exposure to British officers and their culture. He got along well with them, and they formed a productive relationship, an experience, of course, which was to serve him well in the future. Eisenhower's thorough training and preparation of the troops assigned to him was illustrated by the fact that not one soldier from Camp Colt arriving at the port of embarkation in Philadelphia was rejected for onward deployment. From his training experiences, Eisenhower became convinced that civilian soldiers could be effective fighting men. But most importantly, he discovered that the American citizen soldier needed to understand the rationale for why they were fighting and what they were fighting for. He was convinced that once the individual trainee's ambition and interest had been stirred, he could rise to great achievement. Now, promoted to lieutenant colonel, a temporary rank that he would not see again until 1936, Eisenhower anticipated in another overseas combat assignment, or anticipated another overseas combat assignment, but the armistice ended the war, and the War Department immediately shifted gears from mobilization now to demobilization. Eisenhower was ordered to shut down Camp Colt and move the remaining troops to Camp Dix for demobilization. At the completion of this task, about 300 men remained, and they accompanied Eisenhower to Fort Benning, serving as the tank troops of the United States Army. Eisenhower reflected on his fate. If not depressed, he, he wrote, I was mad, disappointed, and resented the fact that the war had passed me by. Yet, he always returned to his high sense of duty, continually reminding himself that the proper place for a soldier is where he is ordered by his superiors. He returned to Camp Meade and volunteered for an experiment initiated by the War Department. It was a convoy of a collection of various vehicles that would engage in a cross-country movement from the zero milestone marker in Washington, D.C., all the way to San Francisco. The roads in America at this time varied, in Eisenhower's words, from average to non-existent. It took three months for the convoy to reach its destination. Eisenhower never forgot this experience. Strategic movement of forces across the continental U.S. would become increasingly important in the future, and in fact, it became the genesis of the interstate system he later initiated as president. Returning to Camp Meade, he began an association with George S. Patton, Jr. Together they would spend 1919 experimenting with tanks as weapons of future warfare. Eisenhower's training experience and Patton's wartime battle experience melded to create the basics concepts for tank employment in the U.S. Army in the, in the interwar period. We'll leave Eisenhower there and advance to June 1944. After making one of the most momentous decisions in modern history, the GO decision for the cross-channel invasion of Europe, General Eisenhower, now the Supreme Commander of Allied Forces, sought reassurance for the decision with the soldiers he now commanded. He met with the infantrymen of the British 50th Division and the American Airborne Paratroopers of the 101st. He wrote to George C. Marshall shortly afterward, stating that he gained renewed confidence in his decision, for he saw what he called the light of battle in the eyes of his men. He had undoubtedly seen this light of battle before at Camp Meade and Camp Colt, 
the eyes of the men that he trained and prepared for war. His belief in teamwork and morale and his patient, clear, and logical approach to problems, combined with his natural enthusiasm, optimism, and humility, were shaped and honed as a leader and trainer from 1915 to 1918, gave him the ability to judge confidently that his troops were prepared. In December 1941, just after Pearl Harbor, Eisenhower spoke of, quote, a high and almost divine duty, which he described as being a real leader of fighting men. Eisenhower was now that real leader, commanding hundreds of thousands of fighting men of many nationalities in the pre supreme effort of total war to liberate Europe. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, known as SHAFE, that would direct this effort was purely Eisenhower's creation, born of his experience as a trainer in the First World War, and would be the ultimate instrument of decisive victory. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.